Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Well, good morning and welcome to Church of the Redeemer. My name is Jason Myers and I serve on staff here at Redeemer and I'm excited to dive on into Revelation chapter 4 with you all this morning as we look at a really amazing picture of God on his throne. But before we do, uh, let us pray. Dearly Father, you are the true source of all wisdom, power, uh, and authority. And it's you who you, it's we who worship you. God, we pray that you would give us that wisdom, that you would imbue us with your power to live out that wisdom, uh, and that we would follow your authority in leading the lives of worship that you intend us to live. God, we pray today that you would illuminate our hearts, empower our lives, uh, to live lives worthy of your service. In your name, amen. So, uh, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but the other day I sat down to start a new TV show. I kind of do this frequently. Secret, I love TV, even a little bit more than movies these days. And so uh, I fired up the TV, I signed into Netflix, you know, clicked it on, clicked play, and I'm watching the show, it's brand new to me. And the whole time I'm thinking, like, something seems off about this show. Um, the characters aren't being introduced, and the story had taken off really quickly, one might say too quickly, for like a first episode. And I remember thinking the whole time, like, wow, this TV show is not written well. The writers of this show did a really bad job introducing this story. Like, this is not good. I don't think we're going to continue. And so I finished the episode. I thought I, I stuck with it for the 30 minutes. It's a long time. Um, and I finished it. I was like, all right, I finished it. I did it. I'm not sure why any of the characters are doing what they're doing. The story doesn't make any sense. And so I hit the home button on the remote. And that's when I saw on the screen the title for the next episode. And it said episode two. And I was like, yeah, I just watched episode one. Um, But for the first time, I saw two new words. It said season two, episode two. I realized that I had jumped into the middle of a TV show in its second season, in its first episode. And that's why I had missed much of the story so far. And so the problem actually wasn't with the writers. The problem wasn't with the storyline. The problem was that I had jumped into the middle of the story and didn't have any background. And it clicked. And so maybe that's happened with you before, with a TV show, a movie, maybe even a relationship, uh, or possibly even the Bible. You you jump into it, right? And you're going, okay, I don't know what the characters are doing. I don't know what the story is. So this is super confusing. Because the Bible's pretty similar, too. Because it's a story with parts and characters and structure. And often, like me with the TV episode, We can jump into the story at various parts and be really confused as to what's going on in the story in the Bible. And the same goes for this book we're in today called Revelation, which, as you heard in the readings, has some very peculiar scenes, some very confusing scenes. And we're going to see that today in chapter 4. And so today we're in chapter 4 of Revelation, but as you could imagine, the story didn't start there. It started back in chapter 1. In fact, if we had to view these first couple chapters of Revelation as a season, we're kind of in episode 2 in chapter 4. Like episode 2 of 10, I think. Let's just go with 10. It's a lot of episodes in Revelation. Um, And so I have an image on the screen for you. So if episode 1 is chapters 1, 2, and 3, 
Uh, chapters four and five are episode two. And so what I want to do today is kind of get us into that story a little bit so we don't have that same experience I had. And so in episode one, we find that there's a series of letters written to seven churches. Seven letters to seven churches. That's chapters two, of, two and three of the book of Revelation, and it's episode one. In episode one, we learn about a series of problems facing these seven churches. And if you take the time, maybe this afternoon, to read over some of those letters to the churches, what you find is that there are a series of problems facing these seven churches. But the risen Jesus comes to speak to the churches through John by the power of the Spirit. Um, and so as we read through these, we find out that these churches in the first century, as we read over those letters, they are in a time of crisis. Things are not going well, to say the least. Just a quick snapshot. Some Christians, like in Ephesus, had done a pretty good job of avoiding false teaching, but according to John, the Spirit, and Jesus, had abandoned love in the process. Other Christians, like in Smyrna, were facing devastating poverty and slander from the community around them, kind of threats from the outside, threats from the inside. Some other Christians, like in Pergamum, had actually fallen to false teaching, and some other churches were worshiping idols. In the first century, the church was in a time of crisis. Things were not going well. Sound like any churches you know. Let's dispel a really bad rumor right at the onset here. There was never, keyword never, an easier time or a better time to be a Christian. Ever. The church has always faced a series of problems, crisis, and challenges that's met with the power of the gospel. And so those seven letters to seven churches, that's episode one. Now as we flip over to episode two, where today's passage occurs, it's right after those letters. And in episode two, John's going to give us a vision in two parts, and it's chapters four and five. The first part is chapter four. We're going to be there today. And it focuses on God the Father on his throne, as we heard in the reading. But the second part of the vision occurs in chapter five, and it's this image of Jesus as the crucified lamb. And John wants us to see chapters four and five together as one big scene. We, we really shouldn't read them apart. God is the righteous ruler on the throne, chapter 4. In chapter 5, Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father as the crucified lamb. And John gives us this kind of dual image of power and humility. God on his throne in a crucified lamb. That's episode 2. And so in these first two episodes, we actually get a glorious picture of the Trinity. And that's what we're celebrating here today with Trinity Sunday. Because it's the spirit that speaks to the churches through John that directs worship to the risen Jesus who rules with God the Father. Today is Trinity Sunday, and we see that at work here in these couple chapters. And so today the lectionary has us focusing on Revelation chapter 4 and this great throne room scene with God the Father. And so that's the story so far. That's the previously on of the last episodes of the book of Revelation. And you may be wondering, okay, what does that have to do with our sermon today? Fun little quick tip. The more confusing and difficult a book is, the more important the structure of that book is. The more important if we can get kind of like a map, a layout of things, the easier the kind of confusing parts become. And so today, that has almost everything to do with our sermon. 
because there's an important connection between episodes one and two of this book, a connection between the seven letters and the vision we see in chapters four and five. Because right after we get that last letter, we finish chapter three, we turn to chapter four, verses one and two, and John says this. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And immediately I was once in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. So what's that connection between the letters and the vision of God on his throne? Well, it seems that the many forms of crisis, the problems, the things not going well in the early church in chapters 2 and 3 are met. They meet the vision of God on his throne in Revelation 4. Crisis is met with a call to worship. John sees the problems. God sees the problems. The crisis unfolding on the ground And this is now put within the context of God's perspective. John is invited to God's throne to his vantage point. And it's here where we get this amazing picture of God in his glory. The crisis is met with worship. Crisis appears to be a fundamental feature of human life, right? We go from sometimes crisis to crisis. Uh, We think we get out of one, and all of a sudden, we're back in another one. Do you ever feel like today, like, the church is in time of crisis? Check out the news. The nuns are rising. People are leaving the church. Oh, that's a, that's a crisis. We got to get people back in the church. Yeah, true. We read out these horrible sex abuse scandals that have finally begun to be rightly exposed and uncovered, and light is finally being shown on some of these things. We have crises like the, some churches failing to believe in Christian orthodoxy, saying the resurrection might not be all that important. That's big bad news. We also have churches that, of course, who claim orthodoxy, but fail to truly practice Christian love, kind of like that church in Ephesus. Often we can be a church in a time of crisis. But what about personally? You may say, yeah, I know the church is in a crisis, but I mean, I'm sitting here today and my life is in crisis. It's not just the church, it's me, my family. Maybe personally you're sitting here and saying, my job isn't panning out the way I thought it was going to. Or my job isn't going to be around much longer. And so I see the crisis kind of forming on the hills. Maybe your crisis is that someone walked out, someone left, someone lied. Maybe the crisis is simply just a sense of loneliness or a sense of a lacking of purpose. Like, what am I even doing with my life? I don't have a direction. We can go from crisis to crisis because that's a fundamental feature of human existence. But this is what makes John's vision here in chapter 4 so, so important. Because don't miss that the first thing that John sees in response to the problems of his day, to the crisis facing these early churches, is not judgment, but worship. Worship centers all of John's activity in this book. It narrates the book of Revelation. God sees the crisis facing the churches, and God says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite you, John, and the churches to worship because crisis is connected to worship. What an unlikely connection. I find it interesting that John's response is not a to-do list, a game plan, or a conference. It's worship. It's not another book to read. It's encountering 
the living God on his throne. I can honestly say that's not the response to my problems. That is not what I do, sadly. My response when I face a crisis, and you can ask Lisa about this, is I freak out, I jump to the conclusion we're all going to die, and then I slowly but healthily walk back from that conclusion to another option. But I feel like it's good to start there and then just kind of work back. It really sets your ex expectations. Um, I'm like, wow, we didn't die. Great, cool, win. Um, so that's how I respond. That's not what, that's not what John does. I find it amazing that the faith that John has and the grace that God gives him to respond in that way. I tend to want to make a plan or give advice. I'm really, really good at giving advice. How good you ask? I give advice even when people don't ask for it. <laughs> it really is a gift. I mean, and a curse, as I found out. Um, all, kidding aside, all kidding aside, my response to problems is, okay, we just need a better plan. The problem is with the plan. That's what the problem was. We need more strategy. We just got to work harder. We didn't work hard enough, and that's why this failed. That's not what Pastor John does here. He doesn't come to the churches and say, all right, what's your strategy? Let's do this. He invites them to come and see God and to worship God on his throne. And this is what makes our Sunday worship so important. What we do here weekly is that worship of God is the practice, it's the liturgy whereby we center ourselves again on the one true thing in a world of false realities. We say this is the true thing in a world competing with false ideas for our time, our attention, our loves, our devotion, for our worship. In a world of crisis, we should meet it with worship. Okay, back to what John sees. What does he see? He sees a throne, and he sees someone sitting on the throne. And one of the things often missed about the New Testament writers is that they are literary geniuses. Like, we tend to look at the books and go, yeah, it's kind of cool. No, 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 it's amazing what they're doing. And so John's going to do something pretty incredible in these next couple verses. He's going to assemble a mosaic of Old Testament passages to depict what he sees in heaven. He's going to go through the Old Testament and like take pieces out. Mosaics are really, really beautiful. One of the most amazing mosaics I have ever seen uh, was a few years ago when I had the opportunity to go to Florence, Italy. And many are familiar uh, with Florence for the famous kind of Duomo Cathedral uh, that sits there. Nice red tiled roof, dome structure. It's the centerpiece of Florence's landscape. However, right beside this building is another smaller building, and I have a picture of it. This is a building dedicated, you can see the Duomo in the back. Uh, this smaller building up front is a building dedicated to John the Baptist. It's a baptistry. And it was created over the course of the 13th and 14th centuries. And if you do like I did, you walk to the center of it. And by the way, the only reason I was in this is we were waiting for our time to get up to the cathedral, and this was just like, well, something to do. This was almost more amazing. And so if you walk into this building, you stand right in the center, and you look up, this next picture is what you see. This mosaic was created over the course of the 13th and 14th century, and it uses over a million tiles to create it. This is one beautiful mosaic at the center of the building. This is one amazing baptistry. I mean, when you stand directly in the center and you look up, this is what you would have seen maybe coming up out of the water. This is your first glimpse once you kind of, the water recedes from your eyes and you see this glorious picture and you're just captivated 
the image of the mosaic is beautiful and mesmerizing, you can't help but fix your eyes on it. The mosaic forces a shift in your focus. You don't walk around the building going like this, you walk around the building going like this, because you just can't help but look up. This is the same effect that John wants to do with his vision of God and Jesus in chapters four and five. He wants to shift our focus. Here in chapter four, what John's gonna do, the mosaic tiles that he is going to use are a few passages from the Old Testament. We already heard one of them today in our readings. It was the Old Testament reading, Isaiah chapter six. John's gonna take that tile piece and use it. He's gonna take the tile from uh, Exodus chapter three and the burning bush and use that. He's gonna use a tile from Ezekiel chapter one and he's gonna take that. That's where those animals come from, by the way, in John's vision. And so if you have time this afternoon, I'd encourage you not just to read the letters of Revelation, but go back and read Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, and see the beautiful mosaic that John describes here. Like the Florence mosaic, it's meant to shift our focus. And so when we look at that throne room scene, this idea of God on his throne, there are several throne room scenes in Scripture, like Ezekiel and Isaiah. And here a prophet gets to get a glimpse of God's glory. But why do we have these scenes? What's so important about a throne? Well, as people living in 2019, we're not too familiar with the idea of a political throne. It's not ever present for us. But in the ancient world, a world dominated by kings and emperors, everybody had a throne room. And this is where kings ruled from. It's where they made decisions, they heard judicial cases, they made judgments from these places. And so when John begins to describe a throne and someone sitting on it, it's John's way of talking about power or talking about kingly rule. The king is on his throne, court is in session, he's hearing cases. Simply put, the throne represents the power and rule of God. If the throne is empty, we have a problem because no one's there to adjudicate. And one of the main reasons to talk about a throne is to talk about power, and John lived in a world dominated by Roman power. The most powerful person in John's day was this emperor by the name of Domitian. Not a great guy, go read about him. For many in John's audience, the churches of those letters in the first couple chapters, when they thought of power, they may have thought, well, the most powerful person in our world is Domitian. What he says goes, and he narrates the world. So let's make sure we keep him happy. Because if he's not happy, nobody's happy. And so what might have struck the original hearers of Revelation when they hear chapter 4 being read aloud is that John says, I've seen the one who sits on the throne, the most powerful place in the world, and it's not Domitian. It's the God of Israel. It's Yahweh. He's the one who sits on the throne. And the one sitting on the throne is described in terms of incredible beauty. John wants to spark our imagination with these passages, with these descriptions. He wants us to stand in awe. And so go out with me on a limb. If you trust me, I won't judge you if you don't. Uh, close your eyes. I want to read the passages, read a section of the passage, and see what it sparks in your imagination. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow shone like an emerald encircled the entire throne. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbling and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. 
In front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, as smooth and clear as crystal. All right, open your eyes. John wants to spark that imagination. What? This is a mammoth throne. The, the description of God's throne room is mesmerizing. It's meant to captivate us in center activity. This is the vision that changes all other realities. We need to be careful, though. There's a temptation here. All right, you can open your eyes. Just kidding. Um, who are asleep. Um, we need to be careful, though, because there's a temptation implicit right here in chapter 4. We have as Christians, speaking a little broadly here, for much of our history, allowed our vision to be lifted upward, but ignoring what's happening all around us. There's a temptation. I think John weeps that we've allowed this to happen. The vision of God in his throne is meant to lift our focus. That is true. You do look upward but it's also meant to empower our service and sacrifice for a broken world. We're not supposed to be so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly good, as the famous phrase goes. That's the temptation. That's what happens when we read chapter four, when we jump into the season and forget the episodes that have come before it and come after it. It is meant to lift our focus, but it's also meant to empower our service. Here are the two temptations I see today when we face a crisis or we see problems in our world. On the one hand, sometimes we can be people who dismiss real problems in this world. We've, we can inherit a story that says, well, God's on his throne, therefore the problems of this world don't matter. It's like small potatoes, just get over it. God's on his throne, it's all gonna be okay, just whatever this world's problems don't matter. Nothing can be farther from John's purpose in the book of Revelation and the book as a whole. We've talked about the, Revelation, the book of Revelation as episodes. Well, the rest of the episodes after this vision are about God establishing his justice in this world. The book of Revelation is about God restoring his justice in this world and for this world. It's about God's radical defeat of sin, death, and injustice for the people of this world who have only experienced those things. These are communities in crisis. These are communities facing problems inside and outside. And John doesn't give the seven churches a vision of escapism where they fly away. He doesn't give them a picture of a God who is aloof of their problems and who can't be bothered. He gives them a picture of a God who is actively involved in defeating the very evil and injustice that causes the crisis in the first place. So that's one temptation. We can be dismissive. The other temptation, though, that we face when we see problems is the temptation of despair. We can see all the problems in this world and so easily get overwhelmed. We go, oh, just, what, where do we go from here? Like, what problem should I tackle today? This despair either turns back into apathy, where we go back to the first temptation. Well, God's on his throne, problems don't matter, we can't fix them anyways. Or we become the solution to all of our problems. Well, we just need to work harder. We just need a better strategy. We just need a better plan. The vision of God on the throne and of Jesus the Lamb 
is meant to empower and renew our work in the world that God oversees and that God is in the process of restoring. John's vision here is meant to help us avoid both temptations, despair and dismissiveness. Because here's John's theory. Here's John's story. We join God in his rescue project. Maybe part of that phrase strikes you differently. We join God in his rescue project. Maybe the part that strikes you is the, is the we join part. That's the, I'm not going to be dismissive. I'm going to see what God's up to and how he's restoring justice in this world, and I'm going to go work with him. It also avoids that second temptation. We join God in his rescue project. That helps us avoid the despair part, right? God is the one who's working. God is the one who's restoring. I'm partnering with him. And that's the big story of scripture. God always involves humanity with him to help restore what's been broken from the garden to Revelation 21 and 22. Well, John's not done describing what he hears and what he sees. The description continues. Let's look at verse 8. We saw this massive description of very weird creatures. By the way, they're just probably meant to represent all of creation. So that's why they look like multiple animals. And so all creation, John is saying, is around the throne and worshiping God in his holiness. But notice what they're singing. They worship God because he's holy. He's the Lord God Almighty. But then they're singing praises to God who was, is, and is to come. Who was, is, and is to come can be a bit confusing. What, what does that mean? Put another way. God is God in the past. God is God in the present. And God will be God in the future. God of past, present, and future. Don't miss the profound significance of this. God always has been, always is, and always will be. God on his throne. What a profound reorientation to God. The God who sees now. The God who saw the past. The God who sees the future. What a contrast to our turbulent times. Maybe a contrast, a comfort in our time of crisis. God is with us, and God has been with you all along. Maybe you're in a crisis right now, and maybe this is your prayer this morning. Holy, 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 God Almighty, the God who is with me now. The God who is. The God who is to come. Graduates of both high school and college, or juniors looking forward to their senior year, the future can be daunting. Maybe you're in the season of an unknown future. I don't know what junior year, senior year, or freshman year of college is going to look like. We worship a holy God who is to come. He's with you now, and he goes with you, too, into that unknown future. Parents of graduates, high schoolers, or college, what a new chapter you're entering into. But this can be a chapter of paralyzing fear. For 18 years, you've cared for, guided, wept over, and celebrated your children. But now they're going off on their own a little bit, and it can be a season of just devastating anxiety and fear. John offers us a prayer. What a prayer to pray, God, you are still God in this unknown season. You are with me, and you go before me, and you go into that unknown, because you are a God who was, is, and is to come. He was no less God then, in those first 18 years, than he's going to be in the next 
5, 10, 15, 20. We are called to worship. We started our sermon with those seven churches, the churches in the book of Revelation, who were experiencing a crisis. What's the response? The worship of the God who is to come. All the elders give glory to God, but not just any God and not just any attribute of God. Take a look at verse 11. It's on the screen. You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Here's the key part. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. At the heart of Christian worship is a God who has not abandoned his world. He is coming again in power to restore and to make new all things that have been devastatingly broken. John and the elders worship God as creator. But why? Why the emphasis? Holiness, okay. Power, okay. Creator? Here we encounter the powerful Jewish belief that the creator God would come to set the world to right. That the world as we see it now is not the way the world was created to be. God's people reflected on this in the Psalms and in the prophets, and they said that the God who created the world would come once again to restore it, to put an upside-down world right side up. The problems of this world, the rampant injustice, a world racked by ecological disaster, starvation, hunger, death, disease, loss of life, these are not the way things are supposed to be. This is not normal. These are the signs of a world gone awry, a world gone wrong. And here's the great witness of God's people and the creator God. God, you created it. You're responsible for restoring it. And so we're calling on you to act. On this Trinity Sunday, we reflect how God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are rescuing this world to come restore his creation back to its design. And so as we look at John's vision of the seven churches and of the th God on his throne, what's that supposed to do for the churches and for us? Well, I think we're caught up in Revelation, like that Florence mosaic, into God's time and God's perspective on our crisis. When we worship Jesus, the resurrected lamb who stands by God the Father on his throne, we can see the problems of our world and not dismiss them. We can also be saved from despair. God is at work. He's at work in the resurrection of Jesus. He's at work in the resurrection of you. He's at work in the resurrection of this world. The vision of God on his throne is of a God at work. Revelation does not give us a world-negating vision, but a world-restoring vision. The vision of God on his throne is not meant to be used as a wand to just wipe away and dismiss all of our problems, but rather the very place we're meant to take our problems, to the one, the Lord God Almighty, who was, is, and is to come. The God coming from his throne to judge injustice and evil, where else might we take our crisis? Each week we are caught up in the worship of God when we sing the Sanctus. We are caught up in the worship of God and invited to participate in a meal at the table, which is a sign of God's world to come. And what we do week in and week out is we get a small picture, a small glimpse of our future. When heaven comes to earth and we feast with God and the Lamb in God's kingdom on this earth. 
We eat this meal in faith as a sign of the world to come, and as our liturgy says, a world that will be without end. And we thank God for this marvelous vision to reorient us. Amen.